Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast. I'm Mark Freeman, an editor at the Senses of Cinema Film Journal, and it's a brand new year, and as is the tradition at Senses, January is the time we look back at the year just gone and celebrate all the great film-based goodies we enjoyed. So for this month's pod, it's a special World Poll episode dedicated to the films and sometimes the TV series that we all loved in 2017. So joining me today for our January episode is my delightful co-host, Eloise Ross, um, who is you know, a writer, she's an academic, she's a programmer. How are you doing, Eloise? I'm great, Mark. How are you? I am amazing. Uh, and in our third chair is we're really happy to have uh, one of our co-editors at Censors, uh, David Heslin. He's also an editor at Screen Ed. How are you, David? Very good, thanks. Hey. Great to have you with us. We're, we're really pleased to have another Census editor on board with us this, this particular month. So we're going to run this, uh, this episode in a kind of fairly wild and woolly sort of fashion. Um, the great thing about the World Poll is that you get a range of perspectives, um, a whole range of uh, films, that some of which we've seen, some of which we haven't. And we're going to work our way through some of the more popular films that people have been mentioning across the World Poll uh, as well as maybe talking about our own lists and some of the lists from some of our contributors. And for our ad-free bonus segment this month, we're going to talk through some of the lists from a couple of our patrons. Uh, so if you have uh, joined us as a Patreon member for Senses of Cinema, um, you might get a bit of a name check in that section if you contributed a, a poll to the World Poll. So how about we get underway? Let's do that. Why not? Um, look, as everybody knows, uh, January is World Poll Time at Senses of Cinema, and if you're not familiar with it, uh, it is basically just a really huge global survey across all of our readers and I guess our listeners as well. Um, and people just send in the lists of the things that they liked the most in the previous year. So we published in early to mid-January this year, and it's this huge, I think there's about 130 different entries going through uh, what we all loved to watch uh, during 2017. So if you haven't checked it out, head over to censusofcinema.com and start playing around because it's super interesting. People do all sorts of amazing things when they submit their polls. So some are really super extensive and, and really quite long. Some are uh, short and to the point and maybe just pick up on maybe 10 films that they really like. Some of them are quite personal and I, I love those ones, the ones that are like, you know, it was summer... I was with this person, I was in this particular cinema, and so they can often be quite personal and quite sort of reflective about the, the period of time in which people have seen them. Either way, the variety is always really super interesting. So if you haven't checked it out on Senses of Cinema, I'd encourage you to go and, and dive in. But the way that we're going to get started is we're actually going to start talking about our own lists because all three of us submitted a contribution to the World Poll um, we're not going to be able to tick off every single film because some films we might talk about later on. Um, but Eloise, do you want to lead us through what you thought were the best things that you saw in 2017? Sure. Well, I, um, like all of us, have quite a long list. So in the best films of new releases that, or festival screenings that I saw, I have 14 films. Um, <laughs> and then I have... Is there a reason you stuck to 14? Uh, no, just... You know, I just had a feeling that that was the right okay. number. Um, and then, well, I couldn't quite stop at 10, I think, was, yeah, I think was that's the reason. The... <laughs> um, but then I think I did list 10 repertory screenings. So every year I also, um, I mean, I travel quite a lot and I also see a lot of repertory films in Melbourne. And so um, I tend to always include some highlights there. I really appreciate um, film restoration and, you know, the opportunity to see things on the big screen. So it's really important to me to include uh, repertory screenings as well. But I think I, I won't talk about everything because, as you said, Mark, some things will come up in a later discussion. Um, but a film that really... Um, so I've listed my films in the, the order that I saw them and Columbus was the first film that I saw this year that's included on my list. Um, Columbus is a film by Coganata, who up to this point had been an, an editor of um, video essays, yes. mostly um, online, and then this is his debut feature. Uh, and I adored this film. It's so still and reserved, and it follows two characters uh, played by Hayley Lou Richardson and John Cho, but it's not necessarily about you know, any narrative progression or, or anything. It doesn't follow their actions in any really great um, 
emphatic way, but it's more about uh, appreciation of them in a space in this town, Columbus, yeah. um, and that they appreciate all of this modern modernist architecture. And the film is really about kind of getting into the rhythm of them um, understanding how they act in space and how the the buildings around them make them feel about their own life. So is it kind of, because I haven't seen it, but I've watched a lot of Coganata's video essays, mm. which are amazing. So is it a kind of architectural thing, is it? So it's not like before sunrise, maybe we're falling in love? or <laughs> Look, there is a little bit of that, I suppose. Most of it is about, I mean, the, the, the two develop a friendship based on their appreciation of architecture, which is really interesting. And it is just a friendship. There is possibly one or two instances of sexual tension, I suppose you could say, but there isn't really um, any desire for them to get together. Um, there isn't really any indication that they will. They both sort of just come to support each other. And both of them are going through periods of grief, um, grief based on, you know, the, the loss of a loved one, but also grief, I suppose, for their own lives and what um, responsibility to family can kind of take away from personal growth and, and um, progression. So it's a really beautiful, interesting film. Um, it is, as I said, very still. So, you know, if you're looking for something with any great drive, then this film isn't really for you. But, I mean, Koganada is famously known as someone who is influenced by uh, Yasujiro Ozu. Um, and so, you know, you can kind of suggest that, that a lot of the feeling in this film is coming from, from that. I'm totally sold. <laughs> yeah, it screened um, once where, or where twice. Where did you see it? I saw it at Sundance. Um, but it did screen in Melbourne at, at an American Independence Film Festival, one of the Palace Film Festivals, but I don't think it got a release. And I have seen recently it's available on US iTunes, but I'm not sure about Australian iTunes. So I don't know where or, or when it will be available um, in other territories, but hopefully we all get a chance to see it. Great. I was really interested, um, also reading your list, um, your experiences in New York, some of the repertory screenings. They sound absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I love to go to New York and I'm very lucky that I got to go there again this year, or last year, sorry. I was there in February, uh, late January and February. And two fi films that really stuck out that I did put on my list um, were King Kong, which I saw at Metrograph, um, and... Uh, Hester Street, which I saw at Film Forum and was lucky enough to attend a screening um, with Joan Micklin-Silver, who did a Q&A afterwards. Um, she still lives in the city. And the reason that these two films really resonated with me so much is that they're, they're filmed there or at least set there. So when I went to see Hester Street, I kind of was actually living very close to where the film was, was set and, and made. So I kind of walked through this, the areas where the film... Um, where the film characters um, occupied in order to get to the screening. And with King Kong, you know, obviously yeah. that, that beautiful sequence <laughs> at the end um, with the Empire State Building. So it just felt so wonderful um, and so, you know, unique and personally um, resonant to watch these films in that particular city. Um, that was really, really wonderful. We, we try often to sort of separate, you know, the films we see from the surroundings, but it's kind of impossible in a way, yeah. isn't it? it yeah. Has such, yeah. It's I one don't of the best things should. about watching films, though. Like, mm. so much of... I mean, you go through the World Pole and half of them are like, I saw this in this amazing cinema at this amazing period of time. And that's that's part of what makes that experience so awesome. Yeah, and, you know, we are... Gaining cinemas, luckily, um, but have spent so long losing cinemas, losing particular houses in which to view films. So there is that loss. But with that comes this really unique feeling of seeing a film in a really special place. Yeah. Um, so you know, let's appreciate those. Yeah, fantastic. Dave, how was your? What give it? Give us the best of your list. Right. Well, um, I sadly didn't see as much as I would have liked this year. Um, having a three-year-old will do that to you sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's my excuse anyway. Um, I did see some fantastic films, though, so I've um, divided my list up into three sections. Um, the first is best new films, um, and also I've got a little section there for repertory screenings and also DVDs, which are a big part of my life, particularly uh, with all the time I spend at home now. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to focus on a few of the new films. Um, on my list I've got um, Matthias Pinheiro's um, latest film, Hermia and Helena, um, and Sierra Nevada um, by Christy Pugh. 
um, the much maligned and sometimes loved <laughs> La La Land. So now, now look, I have to say, you're, you're a big fan. I am. Where, where, are you, where are you on the La La Land debate? I think it's pretty average. Uh, I didn't. I think I enjoyed it at the time, but thinking about it afterwards, I just, I just don't really see what place it has. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not it, on the like. It's one of those really because later on we're going to talk about mother because <laughs> I insist on talking about mother. Um, but um, you know, La La Land is a little bit like that. I think people. Some True. people came out and went, "That was the most incredible thing." And then I had a similar experience to you, I think, that I kept thinking, "That's really great," but I hate all of that stuff. And then coming out probably feeling more positive and then thinking about it and going, actually, I think it's a lot worse yeah, <laughs> than I remember. that was, that um, was how I went. And so it's kind of this weird thing where some people have just, it's almost like people became entrenched, like you're either in that camp or you're against that camp, like mother. Um, yeah, and maybe we don't have to have those kind of no, we, polarised reactions really to films. Don't. But, but that's how it went out. So yeah. anyway, but you're not alone. A lot of people put La La Land on their list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm still getting over my Jacques Demy kick. So, <laughs> um, so the two films I, re- I really wanted to focus on um, from my list um, were um, Beach Rats and Happy End. I don't know if either of you have had a chance to see Beach Rats. But, I haven't. Um, I I found it really interesting. I'm, I'm familiar with the um, director, Eliza Hitman from her earlier film, It Felt Like Love. Um, the films have a lot in common, um, both about the sort of, you know, teenage experience, you know, sexuality, kind of very dark undercurrent. Um, I found Beach Rats interesting because it sort of presents something quite familiar from life, or at least familiar from my life, you know, growing up in Canberra, you know, the sort of trashy, pointless nightclub, shopping mall, late nights on the computer home life that, you know, so many teenagers go through. Um, and particularly, um, the film is unusual because it takes this kind of alpha male jock kind of experience as it, at its core, which I don't think we actually see that often yeah. in cinema, not as protagonists. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I think a lot of um, scriptwriters, um, like me, are kind of nerds. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like identify more with that sort of shy loner kind of yeah, aspect yeah, of growing yeah. up, which we see so often. Um, so, yes, Eliza Hitman is an incredibly talented and visually intelligent filmmaker. Um, and I just found this a really compelling, sad, visceral film about modern Western teenage masculinity. And yeah. I think people really should check it out when it, when yeah. it comes out. Yeah, it played at MIF, and I am sad that I did miss it, but I hope it gets some sort of release. Do you know anything about it in Australia? I, I think it may possibly be coming out of Cinema Nova okay. um, in the next month or two. I could oh, be wrong great. on that, but I, I, I seem to recall that. Um, the other one I want to talk about is Happy End. Um, I feel like the consensus on this film is that everyone's gotten a little bit sick of Michael Haneke. Um, <laughs> maybe he's hit his peak and, you know, now it's just, you know, his films are serviceable, but so what? Um, I didn't feel that way at all. Um, for the first five minutes, I was thinking, OK, OK, Michael, we've been here before. Um, but contrary to the naysayers, I think he is doing something genuinely new in this film. Um, and that's that it's just a comedy, and that's something he hasn't really done before. He's not known for the chuckles, is he? <laughs> He's not known for, like, the, that, that hilarious man, Michael Haneke. Indeed. So, I, so this is actually genuinely funny? It's not, very... it's not funny like, I just killed the cat? Well, it's somewhere on that spectrum. Okay, it's, yeah. it's not laugh-out-loud funny, yeah. necessarily, but it is, it's, it's just a black comedy, and yeah. it does have a lot of just surreal and hilarious moments. Yeah. Um, I, I think maybe what happened with him is that, you know, after the White Ribbon and Amour, um, he sort of was becoming considered this, you know, um, grand old master of kind of world cinema and people had forgotten how perverse and sort of confrontational his films can be. Yeah. Um, like, I saw The Piano Teacher at the Melbourne Cinematheque earlier mm. this year as part of the Isabel Huppert ret- retrospective. And, you know, it just reminded me, like, that's a genuinely shocking film. Yeah. Um, and the sort of thing that makes you wonder what exactly is going on in this guy's head, um, and which is maybe something to aspire to as a filmmaker. But, <laughs> um, but Happy End gets us back to that more transgressive Hanukkah, I think, and he's just taking absolute glee in it. So I loved it unconditionally. Great. I love also that you've um, listed three uh, Melbourne Cinematheque screenings in your best repertory <laughs> screenings. Yes. Well, where else are you going to go? Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, we're so lucky to have that here yeah. in Melbourne. And... But it's nice, you know, these are films maybe that you just couldn't see elsewhere um, and that they've had this effect on you. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, the, the Romare season, um, yeah, I could go on. But <laughs> yeah, it was, it was yeah. great. Cool. Mark? All right, so mine... Um, Look, I saw a, a 
bunch of really good stuff this year, but I think when I looked back on it, so many of them were weirdly kind of tonally strange, and for whatever reason, it seems like I ended up getting on board with some of the weirder films. I mean, I, I don't want to spend any too much time talking about Okja, but Okja is one of those very, very odd films that's about five different films all at the same time. Um, and a number of the, the other films that I really liked we might talk about later on, so I might leave them. But I'm going to pick out a couple that I really loved and, you know, get prepared. Did either of you see Thor Ragnarok? No. I did not. not. And that's where you completely blew <laughs> 2017. Because right. that film was, and I, like, I am here to tell you, I am not on the, the superhero train. Um, I, I just find those films incredible. They've just become so incredibly boring. They do exactly the same thing over and over and over again. Nobody's using it as a, as a venue for experimentation, not even kind of visual experimentation. Mm. And Taika Waititi takes that film and just goes, like, this is a, these are silly stories, right? You get the fact that all of these comic book um, heroes are kind of a little bit ridiculous. And he actually taps into, rather than, you know, I am Batman and I am terribly troubled it's actually just about having hilarious ridiculous fun the entire time so traditionally you get these um superhero films that say well we've we've reached the 27th minute and this is the time for banter and you get that one minute where everybody stands around and says oh black widow aren't you crazy you know and you have that little moment where the banter is appalling and then it's like right back to the apocalypse off we go and what Waititi does is that he hits those comedic moments over and over and over and over again. So it, it still is action-based. It's still exciting. It's the only time I've ever got to the end of a superhero film where traditionally I'm in the explosion coma. Like, oh, there goes another building. Oh, here goes another big fireball. Like, we get it. It's the only time I've ever been watching a, a superhero film and have actually been really excited for that final sequence. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of quite interesting thematic things that go on in that film as well. You know, it's it's light, it's fun, but it is really interested in the idea of transformation, this idea of being one person being transformed into something else. And, you know, it's, it's actually a little bit deeper and a lot more fun than basically any other film almost that I saw this year. I loved it to bits. And it's got Jeff Goldblum in it. And if Goldblum's in it, I'm there. What a recommendation. I think it I'll is. have to wait for a, see if there's a cinema in Melbourne that screens yeah. it again because yeah. maybe the, the television size won't do it justice. Yeah. And, you know, for, you know, for we, uh, you know, people from Australia and New Zealand, there's a couple of shout-outs to, to us. <laughs> um, you know, one of the ships is play, uh, painted in the Aboriginal flag. Great. Um, there's a little line from uh, a very famous film in Australia, The Castle, and there's a little bit, you know, <laughs> tell him he's dreaming. There's all of this sort of stuff in there. So a few little Easter eggs for, for us down in the Southern Hemisphere. So I loved it. The other one I wanted to talk about very quickly um, is Nacho Vicolondo's Colossal, which is a film that I, I really liked a lot. And again, that's a very, very odd film in that it's dealing with this kind of incredibly complex and difficult analysis of domestic violence um, and self-destruction and at the same time, turning it into a monster movie at the same, you know, at the same time. So uh, the, the premise being that Anne Hathaway returns to her small town where she grew up. She hooks up with um, a man that she used to be friends with as a child and starts to believe that her actions in America are creating a monster that's terrorising Seoul in South Korea. And she starts to understand that her self-destructive nature and indeed the, the destructive nature of her relationship with uh, uh, David Sudeikis is really creating this incredible impact elsewhere. So it's a, a really bizarre and incredible concept and I think it's carried off really, really cleverly. You know, you start thinking this is really out there and stupid and then it actually becomes increasingly interesting and fascinating, this kind of location-jumping idea which I really, really love. So if people have not checked out Colossal, I think it's absolutely something to chase down. It's definitely on my list. Mm, As it should be. It's really wonderful. Hi, my name is Alexandra Hella-Nicholas and I'm an editor at Senses of Cinema. I had a really great 2017 for new release films, especially in the domain where my heart lies, genre film, with movies like Nacho Vigolondo's Colossal, 
Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead's The Endless, and of course Jordan Peele's Get Out, but even more so on the women's genre filmmaking front, with movies like Anna Asensio's Most Beautiful Island, and both Juliana Rojas and Helene Katat co-directing Good Manners and Let the Corpses Tan, respectively. While I struggle to pick a single best film of the year, at a pinch, if I was forced to, it would be I Am Not a Witch by Zambian Welsh filmmaker Rangano Nayoni, a powerful political black comedy that follows a young Zambian girl forced into witch camp that explores issues of exploitation, power, gender, national and personal identity. Is it my film of the year? Hell, why not? Hi, my name is Sean. I'm an intern at Senses of Cinema, and my favourite film of the past 12 months is Sean Baker's The Florida Project. William Defoe gives his warmest performance yet, and Brooklyn Prince, despite her age, is absolutely electrifying. It is probably the most fun I've had at a cinema in a very long time. So even though we don't necessarily play the aggregation game and promote which film was the most popular, it is pretty clear each World Poll that some films crop up over and over again. And if you head to the World Poll online, you'll see a word cloud with some of the most popular titles identified by contributors in 2017. So we thought we might rip through a few of the most frequently cited titles. Now, not all of us have seen everything but out of the most popular Let's have some quick takes on our responses to some of these films. Mark. All right, so I'll, I'll kick off. Um, I mean, it, there was, it was clear that there were some films that were super, super popular, some titles that come up over and over again. One of them was Faces Places, um, or what is it in French? Visage Village. Visage Village. Um, which is the film that's directed uh, equally between Agnes Varda and uh, J.R. Uh, look, how much did I love that film? This, this is the film that I had to little weep in last year, which is, you know, I, I'm not a huge crier, but have you guys both seen it? I haven't, You haven't. No. I love it so much oh, as well. You know, there is a sequence where she recreates uh, that sequence from Brand Apart, well, the, the Goddard film, where she is in a wheelchair and J.R. is pushing her through the Louvre and she's just pointing out all of these fantastic grandmasters on the wall, you know, there's a Vermeer, there's a Matisse or something. And he's just dressed essentially like... Goddard, and and he's kind of jumping around behind her, and it's one of the most joyous, beautiful things I've seen. And Mark had a little bit of a had a little bit of a sook there because you know she is what 88, 89 years old, and that's one of the things that the film addresses: the fact that she's getting to the end of her life, that she's been this incredible figure in cinema, and she's starting to lose her sight. How did you cope with that sequence where she has the eye surgery? Oh boy, yeah, that was that was pretty sad. Yeah. You know, she was like, it was like Jr. is kind of her eyes. Yeah. But there's that beautiful. I mean, some of this film is quite sad, dealing yeah, with her death is. and her yeah. loss of eyesight. But then it's also so uplifting. Oh. That sequence where it's a shot of a train and um, Jr. has pasted her eyes on yeah. the train, and she yes. says, "This train is going where I have. Not, this train is my eyes. This train is seeing the countryside yeah. for me." And, and so that, beautiful. That other sequence where they speak to the the last woman in the that mining town, and they yeah. the premise being that they go around, they take these photos of people, and they print like huge, enormous building sized posters um, of you know the residents or whatever of these particular places. And the woman who's like the last mining wife or whatever she was coming outside and seeing her face plastered over her building was so moving. So I. I loved that. I loved it. Yeah, wept it's a like an infant. Terrific film. It really is. Yeah. Can't wait to see it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's screening uh, currently, I think, in Melbourne, so you should have a chance. Yeah. Yeah. It is coming out. Always. So another one that came up, uh, cropped up on a lot of lists, was Personal Shopper, Olivia Assayas' film, which is excellent. And I think I saw it in 2016, so um, I, I didn't kind of associate it with being a 2017 film, but I think that's where it got a lot of releases. But yeah. this is really stunning. I don't love all of Asias's work, um, and I must admit I haven't seen um, that other one with Julia. Yeah. yeah, but this I really loved. It's just a really simple story about grief with Kristen Stewart. 
um, and she is sort of living a little bit listless in Paris. I don't think she likes it there very much. She has a, a brother who's recently passed away and a boyfriend who lives in uh, Amman, maybe. Yeah. Um, and she's kind of alone. Um, and it's a film that really deals with her just kind of getting around the city, experiencing um, Paris, trying to get by and trying to... Um, move forward with her life beyond her grief. Yeah. I thought it was just dealt really well. There are a few instances of maybe CGI where we see this kind of um, ghost-like... Yeah, spectre sort of thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but otherwise it's very low-key, there's no big flashy effects, and I kind of think of it a little bit in the same way as something like a ghost story, yeah. which was on my best-of list from 2017, um, just in dealing with, with grief and personal experience. Um, in a really direct way. Yeah, I, I, I love the way that it dealt with grief in terms of that the idea of kind of the absence of the person who you've lost, but also their constant presence, which I really, really love. Yeah, that whole yeah. sequence on the train, which I thought was really effectively creepy and a little bit yeah. kind of weird and spooky. Yeah. I, I really loved it. I, I'm, I'm on the, the Kristen Stewart train. Yeah. I've yeah. loved her since Twilight. I don't care who knows yeah. her. <laughs> David, you also had... I, I wasn't quite as enthusiastic. I, I'm a big fan of SAS and I do like Kristen Stewart um, as an actor of late, but um, I did feel this was maybe one of his less compelling works for me. And I think maybe it was the whole kind of almost genre sort of setup that yeah. maybe yeah. it didn't grab me as much. Because yeah. a lot of his films are so unclassifiable that way. Yeah. Um, and I, I did like the fact that you have that uncertainty and, you know, that, that sort of trope of, like, the medium who doesn't really know, you know, whether yeah. she's contacting mm. the spirit world or not. Um, I just feel it didn't really stick with me and uh, I maybe yeah. wanted a bit more. Yeah. yeah, interesting. That's fair enough. Yeah. But I know something that you do love, which I have not seen. So <laughs> this is the chance for the two of you to talk Twin Peaks. Go on, David. Well, um, <laughs> indeed. Um, and, yes, Twin Peaks is something of an impertinent intruder on, on these lists, <laughs> a veritable wolf in celluloid clothing, um, and the subject of the Is Pluto Actually a Planet debate of 2017. Um, oh, is that... Now I'm sold. Yes, well, yeah. you, you know, what have you been missing, Mark? Um, I, I have a bit of a shameful confession to make. It's, it's one that has caused quite a bit of angst for my girlfriend and me, and that's that I haven't actually seen the original series. Um, so I came into this that completely fresh. Appalling. What Who you, are you? What have you done with your life? I'm backing out of the studio. <laughs> I, I went into this blind. I thought, okay, well, maybe this will stand alone. Um, and I just have to say there was a lot I loved about it and a lot I didn't, um, as one might expect for something with an 18-hour running time. Even people who had seen the original series, you know, I'm sure we all have heard people yelling into the void. There was a lot that they loved and a lot that they didn't. So, I mean, if it stood alone for you and worked kind of as a series anyway, then, then that speaks to its, its strength um, just as a coherent narrative or as an incoherent narrative, you know, as a Lynchian um, experience. Um, but I I loved it as well. I watched it religiously every week. A friend and I um, got donuts and watched it every Monday <laughs> afternoon or whenever it was. It was, you know, very thematic. It was great. Um, but, I mean, the same thing. Parts of it, it pulled me out and then sucked me back in. Um, but just as, you know, the pure experimentation with narrative, cognitive form, you know, um, music, consciousness... Um, memory, dreams, all of this kind of thing um, was, was stunning. Shall we dwell really briefly on the question of whether it's a film or a television show? Because, I mean, it's interesting you raise that sort of seeing it every Monday. And I was the same. I mean, you know, some nights I might watch two episodes, you know, because mm-hmm. I was catching up on it. But, you know, for me it never really felt like anything other than a television series, a very good and ambitious television series. Mm. But I, I'm a bit perplexed by its, uh, you know, reclaiming by the film world. I wonder whether, because in, and I'm sure he said it in other places as well, but in um, Michelle Shion's David Lynch book, David Lynch says, I think he's asked the question, what is the difference? Or why is your show a show? Or like, what is the difference between film and TV? And, all, and David Lynch says, only the format. Yeah. Only the screening, only that you see it in small rather yeah, than big. Right. And, you know, certain there are certain TV theorists who are angry about that and they, they think that there should be a distinction. I mean, I don't know, and I didn't enter the debate purposefully because I thought, well, who really cares? Mm. If you if you enjoy it, then then so be it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I almost feel that, that it's one of those things where we say, well, we all love David Lynch and he's done this amazing thing, so let's claim it. A bit yeah. like what yeah. we do in Australia yeah. with... 
actors. Like yeah. if we if one of our actors goes overseas and they're awesome, oh, we then we say they're ours. Yeah. But you know if they're Russell Crowe, we say no, totally from New Zealand, we disown them. What so, do you think, David? Well, I, yeah, I think essentially, if I can be so bold, I think it was just a case of people seeing this amazing thing that they just felt, and film people, yeah. because film people particularly were interested in this, yeah. and just feeling like, I need to recognise this somehow, and that which I it. think is totally fair enough. Yeah. And um, it did screen last month at MoMA in full. Um, but I'd be interested with opening credits at each episode, because yeah. that, that makes a big difference. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I haven't heard any reports, but... I mean, I'm, my position on that whole debate is I almost sort of, if I'm watching it and I'm enjoying it, I don't care whether it's yeah. a film or a TV show or whether it's Netflix or whether it's screened theatrically, like if I'm engaging with it, I'm happy. These things are collapsing, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they're, they're all collapsing. And it, you know, we might try and claim borders and in the end I think it's just 10 years' time. Yeah. It might just be projected into our brains. <laughs> That's true. Um, well, <laughs> speaking, of. speaking of being projected into our brains, what else came up a lot on the list? Well, um, mother, with the exclamation mark. Um, now, we've briefly, I think it might have been one of the first recommendations that I had, the, yeah. at least the debate about mother on the podcast. I really liked mother. I'm not saying it's a great film, but I'm saying I loved everything about that film and everything that came from that film. It is incoherent, ridiculous, hyperbolic, demented, um, and I was kind of astonished that some people have really, really hated it. I think that where it does get a little bit silly is that there have been so many different ways of reading it, and Aronofsky himself has come out and started offering ideas on it, that everybody feels like we all need to chip in and say, no, 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 my reading is the appropriate one. But what I found is that I came out thinking of it very much in terms, or seeing it almost generically as a home invasion film, and then almost sort of thematically or um, as, as a sort of thing about the creative process. But then other people have said, oh, well, that's really dumb because it was clearly a religious allegory, or that's really dumb, it was really a you know, climate change thing. And the fact that everybody reads different things into it, even if you think it's stupid and you're looking at me like it was garbage, Mark, <laughs> and that's where you're astoundingly wrong. Um, it's, it's actually really a rich and completely mad film and I loved it. Go on, tell me I'm wrong. Well, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, but I mean, as a cultural, <laughs> as a cultural product, you're right. It's, <laughs> it's fascinating to see to see people respond to something in this way. Why did you hate it then? Go on. <clears throat> I hated the experience of it. It was so um, offensive to me to sit through in terms of sound, image, narrative, the characters, everything. I just as an as an experience of film going, it really put me off. Mm. There's more to it, but in some ways it's as simple as that. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested in seeing Dream depicted on screen, something, of course, Lynch dwells on a lot, and um, Nightmares as well. And I think so long as Mother felt like a, like a nightmare, like I think that worked really well. But the allegory, I think, was pretty ham-fisted, and particularly when Aronofsky came out afterwards. I think, in fact, maybe I read this a few days after I'd seen the film, saying it's all like an environmental allegory about like Mother Earth. I'm like, yeah. what? That's ridiculous. And all the scenes I looked back on and was like, yeah, that's now really obvious and didactic mm. and what the hell? Yeah, he kind of um, put his foot in it when he did that, I yeah. reckon. I, I think that the lesson for 2017 was for a lot of people, Matt Damon, um, <laughs> stop talking. You know, <laughs> stop talking and just let people figure it out for themselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. another film that kind of um, did that, I suppose, and had that effect was Get Out, Jordan Peele's film, which I remember really, really enjoying. It was an excellent film. Um, this came up on a lot of lists and I think has, has also gained a lot of attention for being ignored in certain awards um, ceremonies and... Um, but, like, it's, it's really stunning. It is a hard, hard to market if we're thinking about a film from that perspective. It's like a horror comedy. I really didn't know what to think when I went in to see it. Um, but I loved how aware Jordan Peele was of genre conventions yeah. and how skilled he was at, I guess, subverting them. So the opening scene was really, really excellent. It's like a classic um, horror opening um, a man wandering alone through a darkened suburb. Um, the camera, the way the camera tracks him 
so um, classic in terms of, you know, horror kind of film language. Um, and then he gets attacked. You don't know why. You don't know who he is. Um, and then the, the narrative kind of shifts and moves on. Yeah. And that's also another, you know, like horror trope is just the unexplained, um, the unexplained yeah. death. Uh, and that was really, and then it kind of becomes this weird, like always constantly unsettling, um, but you don't know why, comedy in a weird way. My my brother saw it and said that he was, he'd only watched half of it, I think, and then had to turn it off. And he's like, it's really unsettling, but I don't know why. And I mean, yeah. I love that. that yeah. That's, you know, the effect that this film has. Yeah. Um, just so, so good. And I, I, a couple of things that I really loved about it, like, I think that's one of the best cast film, like, Every assumption that you make about, you know, um, Catherine Keener, about, uh, I was going to call him Josh Lyman, um, Bradley Whitford, <laughs> um, Alison Williams, like, you see them on screen and you make immediate assumptions because of what they've been in, in the past. And all of that is totally played around so, clever. so beautifully. Mm-hmm. So I, I loved that. And I also just really loved the analysis of race. And we're used to seeing a kind of, criticism or discussion of race from a kind of almost like a right-wing perspective. You know, here comes the Klan or here comes, you know, something very sort of, I don't know, rednecky, you know, typically prejudiced. And this one actually takes the other position and looks at race from, you know, what appears to be a very sort of bleeding-heart liberal sort of perspective, which is wonderful. Totally. Like, this This is how insidious racism is in yeah, society. Yeah, You yeah. think you're awesome and maybe you're not. Mm. Yeah. There's that real question in the film, isn't it? Like, how deep does racism go? Yeah. Because these, you know, upper-middle-class white characters, you know, really, you know, probably be part of the identity is that they don't think they're racist and that yeah. um, yeah. they feel that yeah. they're tolerant. But, of course, they come across as yeah. complete idiots. Yeah. Um, I think um, I like the film. Um, I wonder how much of its kind of success, for instance, you know, how many people have uh, listed it um, in the world poll, um, has to do with the political aspect of it. Yeah. Because there's definitely those two things. I mean, on one level, it's a fairly conventional good, like very competent thriller, um, but on the other, you know, you do have this kind of political message which maybe feels very much of its time and and quite new and subversive. And I just find that kind of, that message versus kind of aesthetic thing interesting in the way we yeah. look at films. I mean, that's a film that really hit its moment. Like, that dropped yep. right at the right time. It's wonderful. All right. One more that we'll, we'll quickly fly through. Dave, call me by your name. Yeah, and look, um, this is a film that ironically I saw too late to include on my own list, um, but it would have been at or near the top because, wow, what a breath of fresh air. Um, a film about desire, love, the pain of distance, um, teenage longing, the overwhelming newness of emotions when you're that age. And um, Luca Guadagnino is such a bold director. Um, I have a feeling we're not going to be disagreeing much on this one. No, no, no he's so um, excellent at... Sh- depicting through cinematic, visual, oral, musical means um, unspoken emotions and unspoken desires, and we see that again in this film. It's incredible. And, you know, I've spoken about this before um, on the pod, but, you know, I I would also suggest that one of the ways through that film is not through the the two leads and to watch things through the parents. Um, You know, the, the mother is perfect, and literally you just have to almost see everything through her eyes. Because there's this whole other like narrative so that's going on, isn't there? And you just get those little glimpses of her understanding of what's going on. But it's almost like the film doesn't reveal too much about her and what she's thinking. Although increasingly we come to understand how she's making sense of what she's seeing her son's going through. Just there's so much about that film that's beautiful. I find it amazing that Guadagnino, um, you know, who's always been such a confident director, you know, there was so much bombast in, like, I Am Love, and yet this film was so subtle. And, yeah. like, both films are equally brilliant and yeah. equally, you know... But, yeah, I, I don't know. I just found that really a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. yeah. So I guess that's our discussion of our, our favourite films and we can move on to... Some, our, some good lists. Some, some good lists. At Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and present to bring you exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we have now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. 
If you subscribe at the higher level, you get all the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout the film year. Hi, my name is Sean Bell, and I am based in Civitavecchia in Italy. For my favourite film experience for 2017, I'm going with A Fantastic Woman. Because when I saw the trailer for this, I I was expecting quite a heavy drama about discrimination. And in the end, it is such a beautiful celebration of self-determination. And Marina wins because self-respect is the best revenge. I am Sam Broadhead from Leeds in the UK. My favourite film of 2017 is Most Beautiful Island, directed by Anna Ansenzio. It is an elegant psychological thriller that sustains suspense throughout the film. The initial scenes remind me of Bada's Cleo 5-7. Ansenzio comments on the plight of migrant workers working in New York. This is Yuana Pavlova from Festivalists, Paris. What I can say about my year as a cinephile is that I've learned to appreciate the fact that I can access varied audiovisual works because it is turning more and more into a luxury. With VODs, we thought that everything would become available to everybody, but it starts to feel the other way around. So it is even more important to fight for diversified viewing practices and for an individual canon too, which I hope reflects in my selection. So one of the other great things about the World Poll is a way you can stumble upon really specific contributions that we love. And, you know, I'm the person who gets all of these things coming into me. I'm, I'm the first pair of eyeballs that gets to, to all of the, the contributions that come through. And it always astonishes me how incredibly varied they are, how they serve a whole range of different interests, that they promote different perspectives on uh, film and really interesting categories and the ways that people think about film and how they organise and promote their viewing year. So what we thought that we would do uh, for our third segment is just pick out a couple of uh, lists that we all really loved and maybe point out some of the the wonderful contributions that we got throughout uh, this World Poll season. So Eloise, let's kick off with you. Who have you got for us? Well, one list that I really liked was written by Juan Carlos Ampi, who is a film critic based in Nicaragua. Um, And he didn't give a list of 10 films, rather he sort of listed 10 viewing experiences, I suppose, some which were paired together, some thematic double features, um, some single films. And he'd written quite brief but very concise things about each. Um, It's really simple, but I do just like the way that this list is arranged. Um, so some of the great things or things that I just thought were notable was he's given a double feature titled America, the Poor and the Beautiful um, with Logan Lucky, Steven Soderbergh's film and American Honey, oh, Andrea fantastic. Arnold's film. Um, and I haven't seen Logan Lucky, but you know now I'm curious to, to see how they pair together. Um, double feature artists can be such a pain with Mother and the Mayor Witch stories. Um, a double feature, The Building of the Self with Jackie, Pablo Lorraine and Moonlight, Barry Jenkins, oh. which I just thought was so beautiful to f- pair those. I love this idea of like somebody setting up double features yeah. for, for films. It's wonderful. Yeah, um, you know, and kind of just curating just for his own personal yeah. list, which is, which is really stunning. Um, and then there are some other films on here. He included Twin Peaks, The Return, um, but just in a really beautiful um, kind of way that his list was composed. Oh, also, he included France, François Ozon's film. Uh, and I really have to say just that I was really pleased to see France come up on quite a few lists. Yeah. Um, it was on mine, and I just think it was stunning, a film that, that has really stuck with me. Um, the other list that, that I have spent quite a lot of time with and will return to again, um, when I look at this world poll, I get, I mean, I know I travel a lot and I'm quite lucky, but I get jealous of all oh, of the films that people yes. see around the world. Um, 
but this particular list is submitted by someone um, who I know, I think I follow, is an infrequent tweeter and I follow on Twitter, but I don't know who this person is. Um, Zondunkelicht is their, their um, name here, who uh, apparently writes and travels for cinema. So you can see in this list, which is a very long um, seemingly um, indiscriminate list. It goes, it goes on and on and on. There's a lot on here, and it's normally a list that I wouldn't kind of be able to pay a lot of attention to um, because there's just so much on it. Um, but everything on here looks so interesting. Yeah. This this um, person has included Michelle Shion's Third Symphony, oh. um, which premiered at the Melbourne International Film Festival, which I was at too and thought was stunning. Um, there's a lot of experimental stuff on here. There's a new recent segment and then a repertory segment, um, and it just looks so stunning. So I think this list is one that I'm going to have to file away and kind of come back to for inspiration over the coming year. He's one of those contributors because he's, he's I've been sort of spearheading the world poll for a while and he, he does do these quite long lists but they're the sort of things where you go I feel like all of my like my year is curated <laughs> for me like I'm ready to go um, and it just it's really methodical and really super interesting with a lot of um, a lot of experimental stuff I know that he does. It's, it's really super interesting. Yeah, one of the things that stood out to me was, I mean, Zama by Lucrecia Martel is something that I'm desperate yeah. to see, but uh, Caniba, uh, Lucien Castang-Taylor's and Verena Paravel's new film on Issei Sagawa, the Japanese cannibal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I love those two, their work that they do, and I'm so curious to see it. So I didn't even, uh, uh, apparently I did some search, it had, screened at a festival but um, I didn't really know anything much about it but I'm just so into this list. Um, there's stuff here that's beyond my knowledge but I'm um, really keen. Uh, it includes, the actually I did notice, The Dumb Girl of Portici, the Lewis Webber film from 1915 which stood out to me because just yesterday um, Milestone released that and Shoes on Blu-ray and I went and bought uh, shoes. Oh, so, well, anyway, I'm curious to see some more Louis Weber, but that, but that was great. So that is a list that I'm going to be coming back to. Yeah, yeah. Both great. Dave, what have you got? Um, yeah, for delightful minimalism and those who are thinking outside the square, um, I couldn't help but love film stock writer uh, Kimberly Lindbergh's drawing, um, oh, in which she presents her list in... Is that not the best? Yeah, in flush ride alignment, no less, <laughs> um, over a sketch of the eponymous a sheeted ghoul from a ghost story, yeah. um, which was her favourite film. Um, and I didn't get the measuring tape out to check, but I think it might be an Academy ratio as well. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kimberly's list is really interesting. Um, it has a few of the standard titles included um, and quite a few weird outliers. Um, Alan Giraudy's Staying Vertical, which topped my list last year. Um, and I have to say, it always gives me a bit of a warm glow to see that film. Recognized. I loved it too. It's um, brilliant. Yeah. Much underappreciated. Um, also, Errol Morris's miniseries Wormwood. And, you know, Kong Skull Island, because why the hell not? <laughs> yes. Um, I was also quite taken with the possibly pseudonymous Dernside 6-9's Top 40. Um, <laughs> I did a little research, and it turns out that Dernside has his own experimental video channel on Vimeo yeah. um, with titles such as Fetish Porn for Pet Lizards, Lighting Test, and <laughs> How One-Eared Kittens for Humans in Their Dreams. So, uh, you know, what a character. Um, anyway, onto the list. Dernside uh, gives another well-deserved shout-out to Staying Vertical at number five, alongside a real mixed bag of titles such as Manifesto, Slack Bay, and Guardians of the Galaxy oh, Volume 2. Okay. And I was most amused to find at number 23 the notorious, profoundly WTF 70s half-hearted pornographic exercise, Bat Pussy, <laughs> uh, which he charitably <laughs> describes as a Warholian-style non-film. He also takes a moment to give a shout-out to that Pepsi ad, I'm sure you know the one I'm talking about, referring to it as a great piece of 21st century political postmodern pop art and stating that he loved it in all its misguided glory. And you know what? I agree. Forget all this shameless cinematic appropriation of Twin Peaks. Let's have some more ads. Yes. Dernside, like, he was, he's such fun. Like, that, that list just made me laugh. It's, he's super smart, but he's playing around with film and writes beautifully and you know, was a, a nice person to deal with um, through the World Poll. I, I, I think I don't think that he was on board last year. This might be his first year, and I'm kind of hoping that he sticks around because he, he's amazing. So what did you like? Um, so I picked out a couple. Uh, one uh, is Tara Lomax, and uh, one of the reasons I really liked Tara's was that, you know, we get a lot of lists that, you know, I saw this at the film festival or here's my list of repertory screenings or whatever. The way that Tara approached it was like, I'm totally going multiplex. And the, what she did was basically compiled 
a really fascinating take on franchise cinema for 2017. So, I mean, it is true, she is probably the only person in the entire list that has Alex Kurtzman's The Mummy um, <laughs> with, with Tom Cruise in no, there. No, do you know what? I think actually Wheeler Winston Dixon put The Mummy <gasps> at the he? end of his list. Because Wheeler's awesome. Yeah, so. just as a final comment on where cinema was going in the future. And I can't remember whether he thought it was great or, or terrible, oh. but, but it was on there anyway. <laughs> he um, unabashedly loved Wonder Woman as well. If I yes, that's yeah. true. And, as did Tara. So, you know, um, and that was one of the films I was kind of quite interested in seeing how that went with the world poll, and she's one of the people who, who responded to it. I, I was a little bit mixed on it, but, you know, she's got a lot to say about how Wonder Woman is kind of restarting to reframe uh, some of the franchise stuff. She also mentions uh, Kong Skull Island. Could have been one of our <laughs> most popular films, incredibly. And I don't know whether either of you guys saw it, because I quite liked it too. I mean, it's a real Apocalypse Now ripoff. Um, and, you know, she even includes in there, you know, things like The Last Jedi and uh, Justice League um, and looks at how those films really engaged with concepts of franchise development. So while everybody else, you know, usually sort of relies on here are the kind of um, uh, the curated screenings that maybe I've seen or this is what I saw, you know, in maybe the art house cinemas, Tara's like, you know what, we're going for the multiplex and here we are. And, and I think that's a really valuable addition to, to what we look at in the world poll. The other one that I wanted to look at, um, somebody who I just I really enjoyed their um, submission as well, was Tim McQueen. Um, and Tim McQueen has got a, a whole range of things in there. And if you haven't read through his uh, his submission, it's absolutely worth checking out. Uh, he's got as his first uh, his first item, Auntie Donna Best Content Ever. And it's a web series that people are going to be able to chase down on YouTube. And, and he says a lot of really great things uh, about that particular web series, which I haven't checked out yet. But he writes about it so passionately that I'm like, I am chasing down Arnie Donna. This sounds amazing. Um, but in particular, I love the fact that he not just uh, talked about that web series, but another uh, kind of, it was sort of on TV, but they've sort of come out of a web series, uh, and that is the, the show Get Crackin', uh, with two women sort of pretending that they are uh, on a morning talk show and how they, they sort of try and um, play off each other in this kind of ridiculous setup of them trying to be perky and happy when they actually are just really despicable and angry. And you know, I loved their, their earlier work, uh, which is Kate McLennan and Kate McCartney. Uh, they're such good fun. So if you can, anybody can chase down Get Kraken, that's absolutely worth uh, checking out. Uh, but he's also a big fan, as am I, of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And if you're not onto Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, um, it is part soap, part comedy, part sort of drama, but then also a significant part musical. And so that every episode of this television show brings out a couple of different songs. The songs are completely hilarious and change through different modes of uh, musical so, you know, there are ballads uh, that are kind of ridiculous and silly. There are raps. There are, you know, kind of big show-stopping production numbers. It's very funny. Rachel Bloom is the person behind it. She's incredible. Love her to bits. And that is a really, really terrific show. So I was happy to see, even though, yeah, I know, we're supposed to be talking about film, sneaking something like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend into your list, I'm all for it. Cool. So as you can see, we've had a lot of fun reading the World Poll, so you should totally dive in and, and see what you what you like. In yeah, because there's clearly plenty to play around with, so we encourage everybody to get in there and start reading. Claire Henry, Wellington, New Zealand. My most memorable, yet most heartbreaking film experience of 2017 was the Wellington Film Society's last screening at the Paramount, a cinema that closed down shortly after its 100th birthday. The film was Vim Vendor's Wrong Move, a rather bleak movie anyway, but you could really feel the collective loss in the audience that night. Some people had decades of memories at the Paramount, and although I'm a new immigrant, it already felt like home. Thankfully, the Film Society has secured a new home for 2018 and a great program as well. Hello, this is Tom Vincent in Perth, Australia. My best film experience of 2017 was a spooky midnight walk. Right after seeing Alien Covenant at a small cinema at the ferry terminal on the Isle of Bute in Scotland, there was midsummer light still in the northern sky, strange silhouettes in the hills, and weird harbour machinery lit by sodium lamps. 
the film, Michael Fassbender's android character, and the town cinema, had given me, the heebie-jeebies. Each month, Mark and I and our third chair will share with you a highlight from the current month, something be it from film, television or otherwise screen-related material that resonated powerfully with us and we hope you can find meaningful. Now it's time for something that lit up our screen worlds this January. Mark? Well, I, I'm, uh, I'm on Mubi, right, the, the streaming service Mubi, and... The wonderful thing about movie is that they will just grab a director or a theme or whatever and just run with it for, you know, across a month, for example. And there's been a series of Christoph Honoré films uh, that he's the, that have been playing on movie, uh, and I hadn't seen anything before. I did watch Man at Bath, not my thing, um, just really not enjoyable at all. <laughs> but um, they also had love songs up there, which I had not seen before, and absolutely adored it. It's a, it's a film that has uh, Louis Garrel, uh, Ludovine Sagnier and uh, Chiara Mastroianni in it. And it is a musical but it was such a beautiful, weird, strange uh, musical that it, that it feels really grounded in the, the crisis of what's going on in these people's lives as uh, events disrupt a relationship. There is a, a kind of threesome sort of situation at the beginning of the film, which ultimately sort of is broken apart, and how particularly the Louis Garrel character tries to find walk his way through what that relationship was, what his relationship was with the two women, one of whom is played by um, Ludovine Sagnier. And sort of the, the eruption of these songs out of uh, moments of kind of loss and sadness, I really enjoyed it. And initially I was not convinced and after about 20 minutes, I'm like, this is incredible. And I'd never seen it before. Highly, completely, totally and overwhelmingly recommended. I really loved it. Um, David? Dave? Yeah. Um, for me, the most exciting thing happening this month is um, the French DVD label Revoir is Ooh. finally releasing Patrick Bokhanovsky's Lunge or The Angel. Um, his sort of 80s masterpiece, um, which was previously only available on videotape and is going to be coming out on Blu-ray on the 31st of January. Um, if you enjoyed the opening 20 minutes of the third episode of Twin Peaks with Agent Cooper down in the weird basement, um, lots of strange, freaky things happening, you're going to love this and you must see it. Um, it's basically a series of vignettes set in this eerie, dreamlike apartment block world, which uses a mixture of hand-drawn animation, stop-motion, live-action elaborate masks um, and other experimental techniques. Um, Bokhanovsky is a French animator who over nearly 40 years has only ever made the one feature, as well as a number of short films. Um, although I should note that this Blu-ray also comes with a new hour-long work, um, which has completely passed me by. It's called Un Rêve Solaire, or Solar Dream. I know virtually nothing about it, but I'm sure we'll be in for something special. Fantastic. Well, my best of January is kind of a worst of January thing. <laughs> uh, I apologise. But I, as we were preparing to record this podcast, I saw the news that Dorothy Malone uh, has died at the age of 92, and I'm really sad about it. She, if you don't know, and I don't know why you wouldn't know, um, but she won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her performance in Douglas Sirk's Written on the Wind. Just an incredible performance she gives as this, um, you know, the younger sister of this very rich family. She's very badly behaved. Um, she she drinks, she dances, she sleeps around. She's terrific. Um, and that, the, you know, that final shot of the film is is oh. just, you know, incredible. You know how much I love that final shot. I sure do. <laughs> um, she's also excellent in um, The Tarnished Angels, another Douglas Sirk film that is kind of less widely recognised but I think is stunning. It's black and white. Um, also stars Rock Hudson and uh, Robert Stack. Um, but she's also in a whole bunch... I mean, she's in a lot of really bad films and doesn't always give excellent performances, but I just love her. She's in Roger Corman's Fast and the Furious. She was in a bunch of westerns as well. Um, she's you know, famously was in Peyton Place, the TV series, um, and she... I just adore her, and so um, I've actually been kind of writing on her in the last couple of years, just something little, but I hope to, to maybe work it into, into something. But um, she's a true treasure of the cinema, um, so we have lost someone great today. Yes, we have. And I guess that brings us to the end um, of our big world poll, huge gab fest on every single 
film that has ever been released in 2017. So we did well. We did it. Unbelievable. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Eloise. Thanks to David for coming in. Thanks to our technical producer, Troy Morey, and to Swinburne University, who have given us their equipment. Um, Bless them. Uh, And we will be back with you again uh, at the end of February for the February episode. See you then. Thanks, guys.